0: here here and now, here and welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons, I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. The fossil record tells the story of evolution, and the millions of species which once existed on the Earth, and gradually mutated, adapted, and survived to emerge as new species. At a glance, the idea that we, and every other living thing alive today, began as a single-celled organism, sounds kind of preposterous. Imagine how it sounded when Darwin first proposed it in his landmark treatise on the origin of species. Life, even in its most simplest form, is still indescribably complex. A universe exists within every cell, where DNA carries the blueprints of life and instructions for how it should be ordered. A complex symphony of chemical reactions and biological processes move and shape organisms, with each part knowing its role, although it has no conscious awareness of its purpose. Yet when combined, each cell forms a tissue then part of an organ, a nerve or a muscle, which thrives within its environment. Then one day a random mutation in one of these cells gives rise to the eye, a claw, or feathered wings. The theory of evolution is hard to believe, but that is partly because the timescales involved are so long. The Earth was formed some 4.5 billion years ago, and it is thought that life began around 3.7 billion years ago. That every species, both those alive now and the 5 billion that are long gone, evolved from those first cells over 3,700 million years ago, is beyond remarkable. Yet somehow, despite the commonalities that all species share, that long lines of DNA that carry the remnants of billions of years of ancestry, language is different. Mammals share many features, but there are few similarities in the way in which they communicate. This is an intriguing fact. If language too were to have evolved, then why are humans so unique? To begin to unravel that question, we need to travel back in time to the plains and savannas of Africa around two million years ago. An early descendant of the ape, a hominid known as Homo erectus, is walking upright Homo erectus was a remarkable species, who, it is argued, were really the original creative thinker. Daniel Everett writes, The most intrepid traveller, perhaps the greatest distance runner on earth, Homo erectus was the unsurpassed marvel of its time. No other creature has ever contrasted more starkly with all the animals that had ever lived. Neanderthalensis and sapiens were born from and first lived in the shadow of erectus. We were not new. They were. Sapiens are just the improved model of Homo erectus. Erectus was the first to journey. They were the original imagination-motivated travelers. Erectus lived for around 2 million years. Comparatively, Homo sapiens have been around for just 200,000. Anatomically, they were smaller than modern humans with a flatter face, a heavier brow, and a smaller brain. But they had reduced sexual dimorphism, compared to earlier hominids, that is their body size, hair and other distinctive features beyond the sex organs were more similar than they had been previously. They were a hunter-gatherer species and they lived in foraging bands just as primates do today. The first fossils of Homo erectus were found not in Africa but in Asia and Indonesia but they have since been found the world over with only a handful of places including New Zealand and Australia seemingly beyond their reach. There is evidence of microscopic ash particles at several Erectus fossil sites, which suggests that they controlled fire, which would have changed their diet from that of other species by making fats and proteins more easily digestible and increasing the meat content of their diet. Erectus was also an early toolmaker, shaping stones to sharp-edged cutting instruments, a famous example of which is known as the Udawan tools, although there's many other collections of this and more sophisticated designs of tools, even spears that were constructed by a related species called Homo hedelbergensis. But there is further evidence of Homo erectus' explorer spirit in the fossil record to be found on the Indonesian island of Flores. Although there is controversy surrounding the exact nature of the species found there, it is likely that the fossils belong to a variant of Homo erectus. Flores lies 24 kilometres from the nearest landmass, and it has never been connected by a land bridge. In order for erectus to have settled on that island, they would have to have crossed many kilometres of open water. Strong ocean currents and their physical limitations make it almost inconceivable that they could have swum that distance, and certainly not in the numbers required to account for the settlement. Perhaps they observed larger animals making the journey, which is possible given the tremendous swimming ability of elephants. So they knew there was something worth visiting over the horizon, perhaps. But to build a raft and to make that journey required something previously unseen in the animal kingdom. Imagination. The realization that there exists something beyond the here and now. From stone tools to fire to journeys into the unknown, each of these sophisticated endeavors have something in common which is arguably at the root of language. Culture. Scientific opinion on the origins of language diverges at several points, and one of them is at the confluence of culture and biology. A little like the nature versus nurture argument, there are those who assert language developed as a result of mechanistic changes in the brain and other parts of the anatomy, and those who believe the evidence suggests a combination of biological changes combined with a cultural flowering is what led to the development of sophisticated communication. The argument is compelling. But first, let's unpack culture a little. When thinking of culture and what it means, we might think of ethnic rituals or differences in skin colour and race. But culture is really a concept which accounts for any behaviour which emerges from social relationships. In reference to humans, culture begins at the smallest unit of social interaction, perhaps the family, the mother and child or a mating pair. It's how we can describe the way that minds interact with each other in their environment. Here's Dan Everett's definition of culture. He says Culture is an abstract network shaping and connecting social roles, hierarchically structured knowledge domains, and ranked values. Culture is dynamic, shifting, reinterpreted moment by moment. The roles, knowledge, and values of culture are only found in the bodies, and the brain is, of course, part of the body. And the behavior of its members. We can see then that culture is distinct from other forms of behavior. It is derived from how decisions and actions relate to social interactions that emerge from cognition that lies beyond instinct alone. Culture is intangible, but what it produces exists very much with form and function. Culture is what gives rise to values, knowledge, hierarchies, and social norms it is responsible for the way that we humans have shaped the natural world into a domain over which we have mastery. For Homo erectus, the early signs of culture are present in their stone tools and their use of fire. To create such tools required imagination, the ability to see into the future, to form a goal and to act with intent to change something that existed in one form and repurpose it for something entirely different. Tool-making takes time and skills which need to be taught, suggesting cognitive abilities such as episodic and generational memory, the formulations inherent to culture. This level of thought in culture is significant because it suggests a blooming consciousness and the ability to consider the abstract. This has obvious implications for the origins of language. However, while we must be cautious about inferring too much from the stone tools of early hominids, They are significant. Evolutionary biologist and cognitive scientist W. Tecumseh Fitch summarizes animal tool usage in his book The Evolution of Language. He describes sea otters that break open abalone shells with rocks, birds that use sticks to spear grubs, and chimpanzees that use rocks as hammer, lever, and anvil to crack open nuts. A particular crow species, the New Caledonian, has even been seen to make a hook-shaped tool from metal wire to hook the handle of an otherwise inaccessible food bucket. Fitch explains the level of cognitive sophistication required for tool use. Animals must have a goal in mind and retain that goal long enough to complete the task. Many animals, like chimpanzees, must keep track of sub such as gathering the required rocks for different purposes and transporting them to the side of the food source, which requires the ability to order goals hierarchically. Use of tools also requires complex motor controller coordination. It follows, then, that hominids and homo sapiens are not exclusive makers and users of tools, but there are obviously limits to what animals can achieve. It is precisely this distinction which makes further inference from tool use possible, and its role in the origins of language plausible. But to understand this, we need to look more closely at how language interacts with culture. Language is fundamentally metaphor. Everything we mean when we express ourselves through language is represented by something else. This takes a highly sophisticated level of cognition when you think about it, so to speak. What is a letter or a collection of letters into a word but an arbitrary shape that represents an arbitrary sound that carries meaning? And that meaning changes according to a range of contextual factors. But language is more than just letters, words and sentences. It's in our mutually agreed-upon culturally determined codes, such as red means stop and green means go, or a thumbs up means good and a thumbs down means bad. Language is also embedded within these forms of communication. But none of the specifics of these arbitrary meanings are encoded into our brains. We are not born knowing any one language or system of communication, nor do we favour one over another, despite what some think the first or King James IV may have thought. We come equipped only with the necessary physical and cognitive tools for the job. How we employ them is entirely a product of our culture. We do not need to be taught every possible word and sentence. Homo sapiens has evolved a propensity to learn and apply rules of grammar in ways that may exist in written and oral form or in sign and movement. There are many other ways to communicate that do not require alphabets and cultural knowledge of meaning. I can simply point or gesture in a way that transmit what I'm thinking to you, and you can infer what I mean by your knowledge of what my outstretched finger is pointing at. A paw print in the ground, let's say. This simple method of communication is much simpler than written language, but it is still quite sophisticated. Most other animals don't behave this way. There are two unique things at play here. One is theory of mind, that is, our ability to read each other's thoughts. I know what you mean with your gesture, Therefore, I know what you are thinking. And you know that I know what you are thinking. We are communicating our thoughts in abstraction. It sounds simple, but this concept is important because it is much more than a snarl or a hiss. It is intentional. The second thing it demonstrates is that we recognize the sign of the paw print. We know that another creature made that print, and we know that it must be nearby This form of communication, the paw print itself, is language at its most basic level. It is literal and non-intentional. The animal that left the print did not do so intentionally to notify us of its presence. But homo sapiens are not the only creatures that can interpret a paw print, or indeed many other so-called index signs. Communication defined is the transference of information from one entity to another, so this sign certainly satisfies that requirement. Many animals can interpret signs such as this, so there is indeed communication taking place throughout the animal kingdom. And share pheromones to pass the message that a food source has been found, or to warn of danger. Bears smell honey, and hear the buzz of bees, and bees also do a dance. A bird shrieks at an intruder, warning others. Communication of this sort can be considered according to the 19th century philosopher and intellectual Charles Sanders Pierce's study of science, which he called semiotics. In this model, signs of this sort are indexes. They represent something direct and literal. They can be detected purely through the senses, whether by sight, smell, touch or sound. And this is why animals have no trouble with indexes. But if I were to draw a picture of a paw print, I've now depicted a concept in abstraction. I've created an icon, according to Peirce's semiotic progression. This would be an intentional act. Its representation is still literal and non arbitrary The icon is in the same form as the index was, it is just another version of it. When you observe my image of the paw print, you know immediately what it is. It requires only the inference that I have created a representation of the paw print, the knowledge that it is not an actual paw print. There is a direct relationship here between form and meaning. But if I create a character, a pictogram, which I communicate to you represents an animal, then we together share that understanding and we've created a sophisticated means of communication of the highest order. In semiotics, this would be called a symbol. The precise form the concept takes is arbitrary. The meaning of the symbol is not related to its form abstractly, as was the icon, or directly, as in the index. The symbol does not rely on the explicit meaning of the index or icon. It requires implicit understanding of a mutually agreed-upon code, which represents objects, places, concepts, and all the rest. This is where modern human language is situated in peirce's theory of semiotics, and is why Daniel Everett says the symbol is the original social contract. The distinction drawn here is important. Animals communicate, but they don't have language in the same way that we do. Tecumseh Fitch articulated this difference with his colleague Mark Hauser by considering the faculty of language in both a broad and a narrow sense. Communication clearly involves many cognitive processes, from the senses of sound and vision to short and long-term memory and perceptual and sensory-motor interfaces. Humans do not have exclusive proprietary over these processes. Animals rely on many of the same cognitive and physical mechanisms. Wittgenhäuser described these more universal properties of language, the faculty of language in a broad sense, and arguably every quality of language is shared by animals and humans, and we'll see more detail on that in later episodes, but at least philosophically there must be a difference, because we are different, so whatever those qualities are that are unique to humans, they form the faculty of language in a narrow sense. Now these definitions will be useful to us later as we highlight the distinctions between human and animal language and communication and try to unpack what those qualities might be. So returning to our origin story, there is evidence that primitive communication may have existed at least at the level of icons before even Homo erectus. In 1925, in a cave in the Makapangsat Valley, a few hours north of Pretoria in South Africa, A small pebble was found by a local school teacher. At first glance, it was just another pebble, but on closer inspection, he saw that it had the unmistakable likeness of a face with two depressions for eyes and a small groove for a mouth. The pebble was quite unlike any of the other stones and pebbles in the cave. In fact, its nearest possible source was identified some 5 kilometers away, maybe further. So how did it get into the cave? Perhaps it was walked there in the toes of an unwitting animal, or perhaps it was picked up by a predecessor of Homo erectus named Australopithecus africanus, who recognised the likeness and carried it to the cave. This would make the pebble a manusport, meaning literally that it was manually transported. The Macapangscat pebble has been dated at 2-3 to million years old. Microscopic examination reveals the face-like indentations were actually created by nature. So the pebble is not evidence of an early hominid-made icon, but its very presence in that cave indicates it may have been an icon to whomever collected it. Certainly, to have made such a depiction would be a sophisticated task requiring self-awareness, but to at least see such a depiction in a natural object piqued the collector's curiosity in a way that is not seen among other animals. Imagine finding in the nest of a bird a bottle top and a broken spectacle lens alongside a picture torn out of a nature magazine of a bird that looks similar. So what purpose did the Makapangska people Pebble serve? Was it just a curiosity, or did it serve some more ritualistic purpose? Who knows? But the point is, that Pebble gives us remarkable insight into the early development of language from millions of years ago. Because to understand an icon is a step on the path to fully formed language, and adds a piece to the puzzle of the gradual acquisition theory Of the origins of language we know through evidence from tools and the extensive travels of homo erectus including over water that they understood icons and symbols and so must have had culture to reach this level of cultural sophistication without some form of language seems unlikely how much language they had is a question we will likely never be able to answer but we know it was more developed than in any previous species to have lived but not at the level Homo sapiens would eventually acquire. So what was the secret source that evolved in Homo sapiens that Homo erectus lacked? Was it always there, or did something happen that set us on the path to the present? There's a big gap between Homo erectus and the other hominids which preceded the modern era, and us. The first signs of the distinctive anatomical structure of Homo sapiens were found in Africa and date back to around 200,000 years ago the blink of an eye in the timescale of Paleolithic and indeed all of history. But the first signs that Homo sapiens were on the move out of Africa can be traced to around 60,000 years ago. 140,000 years passed before humans got itchy feet. What took them so long? Consider the Homo sapiens of that period were built of the same stuff as us. We are not an upgraded version physiologically. We share the same DNA. They are our ancestors so we should assume that the capability for language was available to them, just as it is to us. But around 60,000 years ago, there appears in the archaeological record a flowering of creativity, of symbols and artefacts. Then humans, they got up and left. Some argue this period of cognitive explosion and migration must have been preceded by language. If that hypothesis is true, then it implies that humans of 200,000 years ago did not appear in the genus with a fully developed faculty for language. Somehow, it came later. So what happened 60,000 years ago that led to this language acquisition? Now this is an interesting question, perhaps the most interesting question, which we'll return to in a few episodes. But first, we need to better understand how we produce language. What are the physical and cognitive properties that are unique to us? And what do we share with other animals? So let's ask them. thanks for listening to this episode of the here and now podcast you can find us on facebook at the here and now podcast or twitter at here now podcast if you haven't already please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes and if you want to support the podcast you can find us on patreon or leave a review at the apple Podcasts app you can reach out to me via the pages or email the here and now at gmail.com thanks for listening and we'll see you next time